welcome to the Harper's Podcast. I'm your host, Violet Luca. In the November issue, Sarah Smarsh, author of Heartland, a memoir of working hard and being broke in the richest country on earth, and She Come By It Natural, Dolly Parton and the Women Who Lived Her Songs, writes about the experience of being asked by Democratic Party operatives to run for Senate in Kansas. Though Smarsh ultimately didn't run, and her essay gets into the reasons behind that decision, she offers insights into the growing socioeconomic gap between our representatives and the American populace. In this conversation, Smarsh and I discuss the appeal of outsider political candidates, how issues like abortion and voting rights could impact the midterms, and what most pundits get wrong about places not on the coasts. A really important component of your piece is noting that your family felt like they're all crooks, which I, you know, goes a long way to explain why the, you know, why so many people who are eligible to vote in the United States do not. But it also goes a long way to explain why, you know, certain outsider political candidates and here I would include Trump, pre-presidency Obama and you are so appealing. So would you agree with that assessment? Well, first, let me say that it is the um, unsettling first time that I have heard my name in a list with Donald Trump. <laughs> um, but but fair, fair enough point that, um, you know, we're, we're at a moment of such distrust and, and the dissolving of various institutions that folks are, are looking to this, this concept of the outsider or the anti-establishment and that can take forms good and bad. And uh, yeah, I, I think that, and, and I, I would add, by the way, that that reference to my, my family's own distrust of government, which I believe among some demographics is, is well-earned and deserved. If you look at our country's um, behavior toward various marginalized groups over the course of its history, for my family, they, they ended up pivoting left, I guess you would say, in a potentially surprising way among the white working class, perhaps for some listeners of this podcast, but they, uh, you know, like caucused for Bernie in 2016. And and then, of course, there's the, the right wing, more famous or, or infamous right wing version of that in class terms. And, and yeah, I think that that um, was such a, a formative aspect of my political understandings as a child, almost 40 years ago, that it has been, I suppose, Oh, I don't know if surprising is the right word, but maybe uh, um, disconcerting to me that 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 um, feature of the um, American voter it ha- has been so shocking to uh, a lot of folks in power, whether that be uh, at media outlets or in the government itself. I talk some in the essay also about conflating incorrectly populism with conservatism, which has become a feature of the discourse in recent years, perhaps understandably, but that that anger and that disdain and uh, for a, a well-understood and sharply felt imbalance of wealth and power can take all sorts of forms, in, including leftist ideologies. And, and, and certainly that's the moment where, you know, there's this thing of... Um, analyzing an election year as, and I feel like this is almost passe at this point, but sometimes it, it would be described as a, a, a change year. This is a change election, meaning the, the polls indicate that there will be a big shift because people are fed up with the way things are and they crave a, a change. 
I think we're we've we're in like a change era, you know, and we have been, um, you know, I think you could easily argue since mm-hmm. um, Obama's um, first run in two thousand eight. The energy of that campaign and and that moment. Uh, I was in my late twenties, and it, I, I feel like that um, discontent. What was my political um, bias would would interpret that that moment as having harnessed the discontent for for good in many ways. We've since seen it harnessed for nefarious purposes, but the discontent has never dissolved and I and perhaps has only become um, even more of a, a powder keg, I suppose, in the collective. Yeah, and I think that that discontent was a surprise to people, speaks volumes. And I mean, this runs throughout your piece and runs throughout a lot of things you write, that there's this severe, serious disconnect between the people who are in the media, the people who are in positions of power in politics, all levels of government. Yep that, you know, they're extremely comfortable, people are getting really squeezed. And it's and it's one thing to kind of read about, you know, the, the great story of 2015, the former, uh, uh, like, tractor factory worker who's, who's was, you know, addicted yeah. to opiates, and now he's voting for Trump, like that, that sort of, that tale is such a reductive one, when in fact, there's a whole variety of people who are upset and rightly so and not having their needs addressed and it goes beyond just sort of um you know (laughs) there needs to be there needs to be a real effort to um from from the media and from government to address that because otherwise it's like i don't know we just keep getting more and more extremes that serve (laughs) nobody's interests yes yeah yeah the wound um continues to fester for sure and you know Talking about this discontent, I mean, do you feel like things have changed enough in America? And, you know, I'm talking about like material conditions, not some like vague, nice feeling that Donald Trump isn't president anymore since the blue wave happened and Biden took office to ensure that all of these districts that have gone blue don't flip. Yeah. Yeah. I think that changes are, um, can certainly be, be seen at the material level in terms of, you know, that administration making good on, um, some promises in substantial ways that voters will, I would wager, remember at the the ballot box here pretty soon. That said, it's, you know, there are so many confounding factors that right or wrong, that the average American voter might have, you know, have a hard time parsing what Biden is to be blamed for or credited for when you're, um, you know, likely cruising into a, a recession and inflation is, untenable for uh, particularly for folks of limited means. And uh, there's, and, you know, we're just sort of hopefully coming out of of a few years of a pandemic that was brutal in myriad ways, impacting struggling folks the most. And yeah, I think that, you know, for those of us who (laughs) saw Trump as the, the monster that he is, the 2020 election did what was a was a shift in the feeling level, as you indicated that, you know, it, it feels better now that someone sane is is in the Oval Office. But uh, but that, you know, you're, you're asking about how and whether the discontent shifts and to what extent when when that office's occupant changes. I mentioned the, the festering wound. It, it's certainly um, the problems that we are facing as a as a society and as a country, you know, they're they're resting on centuries old foundations. They're they're structural. They're systemic. We see and feel and experience 
material and psychological shifts um, with a change of an administration. But um, I, I think there are probably a lot of comfortable urban liberal folks who um, might be resting too easily on the assumption that Trump being out of office means that the dangers that he represented are, are necessarily lessened in substantial ways. Or that people feel motivated to keep him out. Right. That, you know, I, I mean, speaking to people, you know, post 2016, I, I, most of the people I spoke to who don't live on the coast didn't vote because they didn't like either candidate. And so this idea that it's like, well, you know, there's this crazy guy who's going to get into office and do that. It's like, I'm sorry, you need, mm-hmm. you need, you need to address, you, you need an actual platform. You need to yep. actually yes. address issues. And it's, it's such a basic thing, but it seems like it's, it, it, it just doesn't make it through to, and I mean, obviously, you know, it's a political consultant decision. It's a lot of, it's a lot of different things manufacturing that or sustaining that fantasy Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know one of the main things that has been driving me nuts this year to what extent do you feel like the overturn of roe will shape the results of the midterms i mean you wrote this really excellent editorial in the new york times about kansas women lining up for hours to protect their rights you know sort of regardless of blue or red you know and a lot like a lot of things in american politics the right to an abortion is overwhelmingly supported by voters but there's this small contingent of people uh most of whom seem to be in elected office or in the case of the supreme court unelected office who do not support the right to choose so to what extent will that significant change and all of the changes that could potentially come now that roe is no longer in place shape the the outcome. Yeah, well, you know, coming to you from rural Kansas right now, I can say that that um, August 2nd primary where we voted down resoundedly a constitutional amendment that would have stripped away uh, abortion rights at the state level. And that was, as you kind of alluded to, the first first such vote post overturn of Roe and and the defeat of that amendment, you know, sent shockwaves through the uh, the national political landscape and and was likely the most influential factor in in shaping the general election strategies of democratic campaigns and 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 probably republican campaigns too and sort of toning down their anti-abortion anti-choice messages across the country so you know we will see the extent to which that was you know kind of a bellwether i think that the 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 most important revelation not revelation to to everyone more like validation for some of us who have been arguing that this sort of nuance exists on the ground. But the revelation for for many po- political analysts was that this um, clunky, reductive, goofy red and blue map that we are constantly referring to can be disastrously misleading about what people actually believe. So if, if you've got, you know, uh, let's say in... in um, presidential elections. We're working with an, an electoral college that effectively, you know, in this sort of winner-take-all politics with state electors, you're you're erasing the votes of millions and millions of people across the country. And, and so you can have a place like Kansas where there's like 
you know, a, in general, okay, there's there's more registered Republicans in Kansas as just a state level example than there are Democrats by quite a margin. But like 30 percent of of registered voters in Kansas are registered as independents. So you're talking about like almost one in three are saying to hell with both parties and voting based on issues or candidates. And meanwhile, the that Republican cohort is not actually a majority of Kansas voters. It's a plurality of registered voters here. Very different things. And so the the bottom line is it makes for a situation in which Republicans win more often, but not necessarily by huge landslides. And and so then when you color the state red and say deep red Kansas, they're saying deep red because we've, you know, gone Republican in presidential elections for decades without fail, almost always send Republicans to Washington at the state level, though, we're the only state in the nation that has... um, elected three Democratic women as governor, um, and more often at the state level, moderate Democrats get in. And and so it's, and you can't, you know, Kansas is Kansas, Iowa is Iowa, Alabama is Alabama, Washington is Washington, like the state. These, to, to say the, the red and blue dichotomy or binary is problematic in so many ways. It erases the character of, of any of these given places regionally or demographically. You know, I, I knew growing up here that, that most of the people I know, and I was raised Catholic, by the way, um, you know, with a lot of quote unquote pro-life messaging. And even among those women, I knew that sometimes like said that that was their thing. There was, you know, in private conversations, more complexity than that. And so I knew that it was going to be close. I wouldn't have necessarily like bet a lot of money that the amendment would be defeated. And when it was, oh man, well, I cried with just, uh, I mean, it, it was, I don't think we can overstate how huge that was. And then that pivotal moment shifting the way that these campaigns talk to voters leading up to uh, the election next month, it felt validating that like this thing I do where I'm arguing that we can't write off whole places and regions is an argument worth considering. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, uh, I'm from Iowa. And I remember the same thing happening with when gay marriage was legalized in Iowa. And everyone's like, Iowa? Right. It's like, yeah, people don't care. Mm-hmm. People don't care what you do in your private life. And like this whole sort of like weird uh, now that this pivot towards like, let's take away trans health care. Let's make trans rights uh, this this wedge issue. It's just like so many people don't care. Mm-hmm. And or their personal feelings are way more complicated. And that mm-hmm. that issue based voting shit is not going to fly. Yeah. You know, well, this sort of leads into my next question, because, you know, talking about this winner take all this idea that, OK, so this one person got over the line and therefore Kansas is deep red. Therefore, there's this mandate from the people that, OK, no, <laughs> you know, every everybody's super conservative, you know, mm-hmm. on something else that's very transparently on the line this election is voting rights in every sense. And, you know, in somewhere like Pennsylvania, I believe Dr. Oz was asked, you know, what is his feeling about overturning the election results and, and giving the state's electoral votes to the other candidate, you know, and the idea that there was election interference or whatever, right? And that's a scary thing. And that really points to the severity of the ability to vote. And, you know, I, I don't want to sound alarmist because the past, <laughs> all of the Trump years were just screaming, not unjustifiably, but still it's, it's this sense of panic. I mean, 
I think maybe that's another reason why a lot of people who don't have the time or inherent interest in following politics kind of tune out of politics. But do you get the sense that, you know, from where you're sitting, like the severity and the pervasiveness of, you know, your vote really doesn't matter now, but it's in the future, it will absolutely not matter is understood outside of like, I don't know, mutants who voluntarily log into Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well. first, let me say, to kind of unpack all that, that the um, efforts, substantial efforts being made by the Republican Party toward um, voter suppression are are part of kind of the ecosystem of problems that, that lead to something like a state being misrepresented by its electoral politics. So if you've got gerrymandering, dark money, mm-hmm. voter suppression along with, you know, some understandable apathy among voters, what you're seeing after an election is is not necessarily a reflection of the people of a place. It's a reflection of who got who got a chance to vote, who knew enough to vote, who had the right information to vote according to their values. You know, I don't think we should underestimate uh, misinformation and disinformation's ability to like, you know, pervert the the well-intended vote of someone who might who might actually have different behavior as a voter with different information. So all of this means that, you know, to say all those dummies in Kentucky keep electing Mitch McConnell, well, <laughs> you know, like that isn't fair. And that no. that isn't how, it, that's just not reality. And it, it's, a, it's a very immature way to discuss politics or begrudge federal help to flood victims, for example. Yes. So... Yeah, as far as now, like, then what? what is the sentiment and who feels like your vote even matters? And, you know, I, I think I talk in my piece about how I think there's been a healthy shift um, among w- within the left and particularly among young activists and, and also to some extent within the Democratic Party itself to a- acknowledge that it's not enough to just say to people, your vote matters, go vote, and then we'll solve the problems. Like, clearly... It's a uh, bigger picture in terms of affecting change at the societal level than just showing up and voting, though that is an important um, responsibility within democracy. I think that th- there's there's a fair growing criticism of the uh, the franchise and its effectiveness. But meanwhile, also like we damn well are are fortunate to have the pretty well run system that we do, and and I think you know what what I see on the ground actually is more, I know a lot of people who in recent years have voted for the first time, particularly working class people. I know, you know, I see a greater activation this past um, primary, and this of course was highly, highly related to that controversial um, anti-choice constitutional amendment. But I want to say there was like three times the usual primary primary turnout in Kansas. So I, I, I think that people are still activated and motivated in for, for very different reasons. You know, we've also, they're in the national news that this is happening across the country. There's this disturbing, you know, call to arms that to basically like surveil voting sites based on this, you know, drummed up illusion of voter fraud that doesn't exist. And, and so some people are feeling, you know, activated and in a fear-based and sort of scary and threatening way. But, but a lot of people I know who didn't used to vote have a new sense of what's at stake now 
because of, you know, good reporting on the voter suppression efforts that, that you were just asking about. And so I, I'm actually encouraged that at, as scary as, as some of the stuff is that's going on in the ether, I still think that most people, um, the, the crazy shit that's going down, I guess what I'm saying is like, um, it's, it's louder than the relatively sane majority. You could certainly make an argument that, well, if you've got like 48% of people voted for uh, voters went for Trump in 2020 or whatever it was, that's like a much bigger than a fringe problem on our hands and, you know, agreed. <laughs> um, but but I think that that kind of ties back to the argument I was just making that there, there are some people are voting in a scary direction because they themselves are scary people. Some people are voting for a, a scary direction because of disinformation and a host of factors that are more complicated than just, you know, a monstrous individual. And maybe most importantly, you've been hitting on this. A lot of people don't vote at all. So we're seeing a reflection of who gets to vote, um, who has the right information. And and I do think that meanwhile, that there has been a political awakening and I see it, like I said, I, I see it in my own family. And um, yeah, we'll, we'll see who shows up in the next week or so. Yeah. And you recently tweeted about Ted Cruz's decision to leave Texas during a statewide power outage and seeing him him kind of pivot and try to be like, actually, it was my wife's idea. Like that was yeah. that was amusing. But you wrote that, you know, our quote, our government is in moral collapse, which is a condition not felt not just in material terms, but in the heart. So I'd love to hear you talk more about this moral collapse and what is the way out of this morally vacant state? Yeah. So, you know, that was a thousand news cycles ago, of course, the scandal where he was like fleeing to Cancun or whatever and abandoning his state and constituents who were in the midst of great Freezing. great suffering. Yes. Um, but I think it came to mind because he was in some headline and and I remembered it. And it's something that my husband still brings up once in a while. It, it has just, I guess, become for me or within my household, just kind of like a symbol of that rampant moral collapse I referenced in the tweet. And the way out of that involves letting ourselves handle and discuss the concept of morality um, on on the political left, because I think that uh, some of the trouble that we find ourselves in right now, and I say this as someone who prizes the separation of church and state and a secular society, I think that um, it nonetheless became kind of like a problematic taboo to even handle the concept of morality anywhere outside the the right wing. It's not necessarily a, a, a popular term for folks of, of my political persuasion. And that's one of the reasons I'm, I'm a big fan of the Poor People's Campaign is um, a kind of intersectional movement addressing all sorts of injustice, but that includes economic injustice. And it's led by, uh, I, th I think, two clergy people who ha happen to be Christian, but the movement also involves atheists and agnostics and people of all religious persuasions. And, and their conceit or their argument is we we have a moral problem on our hands in this country. And I think if you just like get down into the heart and allow yourself to perceive right and wrong in just terms of like human suffering and fairness, and it's one way to get 
past or outside of some of the exclusionary language or weaponized terminology that we often fall back on in partisan terms that immediately causes discussion to break down across impasses of disagreement um, in ideological terms. And so if you kind of like stop giving like your liberal signal words um, as as helpful as those you know may be, and as validating as they may feel to share among friends, clearly that strategy is <laughs> it isn't um, persuasive if if that's what you're going for. And so, um, if you can kind of circumvent those identity based vocabularies, as helpful as as they may may be in many ways, I, I want to clarify. And and just talk to somebody with whom you disagree with on the how and why and how much and who, and just, you know, like get down to the heart of what is, what is okay, what is right and wrong. I think that those discussions are, um, it's, it's a place to find common ground that might then allow for us to move forward in a more of a policy direction that involves consensus. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, stupid only in New York City anecdote, but I was at a bar one evening and there were a group of women who were alumni or or were currently working at Newsmax, Fox News. They were extremely conservative. And ultimately, like we we agreed on what was uh the problem. Like we agreed, yes, all of these things are problems. And I mean, first of all, it's so overstated when you reach across the aisle that it's like, oh my God, you're doing this amazing thing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying I was, it's like, oh yeah, we can we can agree on what the problem is. We disagree about what the causes are because they think government is a problem and I think <laughs> business is the problem. But ultimately it was just like, we, you know, this, all this, this talk about, you know, alternate realities. It's like, well, that's true. That's not, that's, you know, there are, there is a ton of disinformation out there, but ultimately, like, if you are talking to someone like a human being, you are going to reach this point where it's just like, yeah, people, you know, things are not great in this country. And let's talk about why. And again, getting past these sort of things that we fall back on, because those are the popular things within the media we consume, which is, you know, center right, center left, whatever. Like mm-hmm. compassion, like it's not, it's not, it's not so hard. And again, like that question of morality, it's like, yeah, we can agree on what's wrong, and that's that's how you move forward. But I have to note, you had mentioned sort of this church and state reality that we're in. You know, if you had decided to run for a senate seat in Kansas, we wouldn't be talking right now, and you probably would not have, you know, written this article uh, at all. So. I'm just curious to know more about your views on the separation between journalism and politics. I mean, is this separation of special importance to you? And if so, why? Yeah, I I do think I might be a a little bit more, I I think I might be a bit bit of an outlier. I hesitate to use their term purist because the um, blurry line between those two realms has existed since the beginning of time. But um, I did nonetheless receive a sort of like, traditional hard ass newspaper training um as a as a budding journalist beginning in at the very end of the 20th century and a you know kind of like the the last days of the newspaper era when you know cable news was a thing and um what do they call it infotainment was definitely like a burgeoning <laughs> genre but um but but I you know it was um, I, I remember like a media ethics class that I took my junior year or whatever where it was just like really drilled into me what is and isn't 
proper as someone that's going to, or what is and isn't um, ethical, frankly, for someone who is going to hold the immensely important role of distributing and encapsulating and conveying information that affects the way that people live their lives. And, and one of those ethics was that like, you don't, you know, you get a press release, you don't just regurgitate what it says. You, you um, report on a, a political press conference. You, you, you understand that there's spin happening there and that's, that's the comms person's job. And, and you get offered a dinner or a gift and you don't go. And even if you're, even if you happen to vote for this dude, if he asks you to introduce him at a campaign event, you do not. Or, you know, I mean, I don't like it's So um, today that the lines are a little more, well, gosh, back then you weren't even supposed to politically state your, um, or excuse me, publicly state your political views that has shifted greatly. And, and so the way that I, yeah, so the, the way that I see, you know, I, I think it, it's a, it's a positive shift to some extent, because like I say in the essay, I, I'm not um, unaware of the the problems of feigned objectivity. So if you've got a bunch of, and back then it would have been mostly uh, middle-class white male reporters walking around claiming their objective, even if they're um, earnestly striving f- toward that virtue, their identities and experiences and, and, their, and, and all sorts of facets of who they are mean that objectivity never will truly exist and, and it never will for any of us. I do, though, still think that it's um, that that doesn't mean that it it isn't help um, worthwhile to draw boundaries. And so for me, you know, I I wouldn't you know champion any particular organization or align myself with them. Not be not because I'm hiding my political views, which I wear on my sleeve in my op- opinion writing, but because I need to you know main, maintain for myself this zone of um, you know free from conflict of interest and, and being unbeholden to, you know, anyone's feelings or, or obligations to them. And, and so, yeah, I just, I, I felt like I'm a, I'm a journalist and a writer and I, I've known that I was those things since I was a little kid. And so the, the honor and the privilege of being courted to run for office, it was a trip. Uh, it was a journey. It was something that I deeply considered and had kind of had it in the back of my mind just because of my particular um, interests in, in social justice and, and how do we work toward that. But in the end, it was like, you know, I, I felt like I would have to kind of trade in my credentials as a as a journalist in some ways for forever if I crossed that threshold into, uh, you know, from the fourth estate into the government proper. And that line is different for everyone. And I, I don't claim to, you know, have the end all judgment on it, but that was that was true for me. Yeah. And I mean, thinking of your story and, you know, someone who's gone from journalist to political leader, or at least aspires to become a political leader, I'm reminded of J.D. Vance, who he took the road you did not. And I would be interested to hear, you know, your read on his, uh, you know, his his interpretation, his read on poor rural America. Mm-hmm. So when his when uh, Hillbilly Elegy came out in 2016, well timed, which I think might have just sort of been the kairos of the universe for for him that it wasn't necessarily strategized, but there it was, this book purporting to represent the poor white rural working class mm-hmm. by way of Appalachia, written by 
a conservative white man who happened to fit the mold of what everyone thinks would represent that space. I shouldn't say everyone, but a lot of folks who don't know that space directly. And the Trump campaign was riding high. And then there was this convenient explainer for everyone from MSNBC to Fox News, widely embraced and, and lauded as a an, an accurate and an, uh, tale and perspective worthy of attention. I will say that at that moment, I was already under contract for Heartland, which I had been writing for years. And, um, you know, it, I, I winced every, every time there was this just sort of like easy turning to him as the anointed representative of a diverse <laughs> swath of America, many of whom don't agree with him. Um, but but the main reason I winced was that his take on that place that he came from drew very different conclusions than than I did growing up in the poor rural Midwest. This, you know, he's at at the time it was sort of like a moderate conservative message about pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps and and um, improving one's character and. Um, you know, I would say harnessing the language of morality in a way that for me feels exclusionary, judgmental, and problematic and intended to basically preserve systems of patriarchy and, in fact, the, the class inequality that he proposed to be critiquing, so uh, purported to be critiquing. So now he's running as a Trump acolyte and has I think for the story supposedly is that he what this he shockingly pivoted right to sort of pander to Trump but the like for me and other folks they were like you know there there are a lot of um red flags in this dude's take and his story it wasn't surprising at all and it's part of the reason why it was so brutal to watch him kind of lift it up and um uh you know as I said not just by the right but by the left a few years ago and now he's you know opportunistically riding that wave and um, not surprisingly. And, and so I, you know, I, I, I disagree with the dude on how to solve problems. I, I don't doubt that he cares about the place that he comes from on some level, but so much of his perspective to me feels like a slap in the face to people in poverty in just in policy terms that uh, to me, it's just kind of like hard to take the guy seriously and not see the the whole thing as as a big sort of um, you know just exemplification of hypocrisy. Frankly, all I'll say is that when I watched the movie and he's like, "What is Chardonnay?" I was like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> Every grocery store has boxed wine. Come on, man! What mm-hmm. what?" <laughs> Well, in in fairness, in fairness, I will say that when I left um when I left the wheat farm in 1998 and went to just like even a little college town a few hours up the highway, um there were <laughs> I will say there were a number of things in a pre pre-internet life that I had never never encountered before um ate for the first time, saw for the first time. So, but you know, the, I I hear what you're saying that like there's a lot of I, I didn't watch that movie. I I couldn't bear to. I couldn't bear to. But pr- proving a little too hard, you know, where where you come from, and I I see that in a lot of Republican campaigns, and many of that, you know, he frankly has a much more authentic story than than the vast majority of those dudes in blue jeans do. But uh, 
their message sucks. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, getting to this question of actual working class people as opposed to people who are cosplaying as working class people. Mm-hmm. How do you believe more working class senators might affect policy in America, you know, and, you know, based on your research and your experiences in Kansas? Yeah, I write in the essay about, you know, just the the data on how wealthy and um, it and also in class terms, the disconnect between our elected officials, namely in United States Congress and and the rest of the country in terms of what sorts of jobs they've ever held. And, you know, it's mostly millionaires who have never done manual labor and the vast majority, well, not the vast majority, but like the, the majority of Americans have done manual labor. And certainly the vast majority of Americans are not millionaires. So it's, yeah, it's, oh, and, and I would add a third component to the sort of um, class portrait of those two groups being whether one holds a college degree, bachelor's or beyond, there's, um, you know, a, a stark, it, you know, it's like 95 or a hundred percent of United States Congress has at least a bachelor's degree. And I don't remember what, what the stat is for the country as a whole, but less than half. And so, you know, you end up with, we, we talk a lot about lack of representation um, and and efforts to improve that representation along lines of race and gender and maybe to some extent uh, religion and disability, sexual orientation and so on in the annals of government. But we very rarely, if ever, talk about that sort of representation in class terms. In fact, that notion is very clumsily handled as a framework for what what sort of voter is should be considered prized or dangerous that they're are they uneducated or are they educated and it's like well you know educated people actually <laughs> formally educated people I don't really care for that term but people with college degrees many of them from Ivy League institutions and a lot of wealth you know planned out and enacted the democratic crisis that we are facing right now and um you know the way that I see it I I, I don't want to um dismiss or minimize the culpability and responsibility of any one given voter who was successfully preyed upon or bought into the message the messages from that side but um it's it's just not fair to my mind to to blame the moment on that the uneducated american voter who's so stupid they vote against their best interest and they are clearly all, you know, backward, racist, sexist, mongrels who are tearing our country apart. And it's like, well, you know, I like what, regardless of what I'm, <laughs> of what problem I'm, I'm critiquing, the, the brunt of that critique falls to power. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like the, the left does a good job of that in all sorts of ways, but then it kind of breaks down when we get to the class discussion. So, um, the, this this assumption that we have that if you have a degree that you're a better person is just a feature of our of our class of society and these incorrect ideas that we're taught about who does and doesn't have value in myriad ways and um, you know that studies have been done that I cite in my essay that confirm in in global terms even that those sorts of class markers do not necessarily predict better leadership and and in fact you know we're we're, we're living proof right now, I, I think, of of that. Yeah. Another great Kansan 
Thomas Frank wrote about the PMC cycle or the, the, the faultiness of the PMC, but, you know, I would love to hear you discuss, a, you know, a bit maybe about how, if there were more working class senators, this gap between, uh, you know, income, education, all of these things were sort of overcome in some way. How would people in rural, rural America benefit? Would it, you know, what, what things could change for them? Oh, yeah. This question makes my heart sing because I think there are probably a lot of people who would, who would be like, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so counter to our classist assumptions that I think it would, it would blow some people's mind to even consider. It's, it's like, well, it's not that it's not a matter of representation. It's a matter of whether you're qualified, I think, is what people would think. But in fact, that's, that's just that's classism at work is that there's all sorts of ways to be qualified to do our, all sorts of things. And um, if, if it's a matter of, you know, leadership and, and understanding um, what policies will, you know, achieve a certain goal, you know, college degree and, and maybe even a law degree isn't, isn't necessarily the best preparation. As I say in my essay, if you have like lived experience of some of the problems that many of these wealthy lawmakers have a vested interest in failing to solve, you might actually be better equipped than the highly degreed to figure it out and fix it. A lot of things get made way more complicated than they need to be for the sake of preserving power structures and wealth imbalance. So like um, I'm often asked when I give lectures, since you have firsthand experience of poverty, what would you, what would you, well, I get to ask two questions. What causes poverty and how, how can we fix it? And it's like, to me, I always say, and, and I don't, you know, give this pithy answer to be flip. It's actually what I believe. And, and I think, you know, I suppose it's more complicated to, you know, turn it into policy, but it basically comes down to this. What causes poverty? For the most part, being born poor. Okay. And what, how do we fix poverty? For the most part, give people money. The end. That's the fucking end, man. That's it. And we've got it. We've got it, baby. We just ain't giving it. Okay, so like... Yeah. <laughs> that sort of like just cut the crap kind of thing is like, you know, people with an ex direct experience of poverty or working class existence, um, I think could, you know, make those arguments in a more compelling way and and have a, a, a heart, a, you know, a, a lived understanding of why the problem needs to be solved, that tends to be motivating um, and make for an impassioned lawmaker, I, I would say. And so how, you know, how would things look different for us if, if we had a little more class diversity in our government? Well, here's the thing is that, and I think, okay, you know, po policy might look different, but, but the most fundamental, foundational, important um, shift relevant to this moment is that the, the working poor and people in poverty and the working class, their sense of resentment and anger could have a moment to dissolve because they would see like, it, and, and then that in itself, you hear what I'm saying, would then, would then lead to the, you know, a dissolution of, of all sorts of scary things that are going right now in, in the in this country. So a, a lot of the anger, you know, people don't necessarily know why they're pissed off often. And that's true for all of us. That's human nature. But I think that a lot of that anger get, that gets tapped and it gets harnessed in very dangerous ways, xenophobic ways, racist ways, homophobic ways, sexist ways, 
the real anger is, um, is, is not actually at any of those groups. It, it's at the world for, you know, feeling screwed and, and indeed, you know, people, ha- people have gotten screwed. Like we're, we're living in a country where in all sorts of ways, by the way, in intersectional ways, but now since we're talking about class, part of that getting screwed involves the redistribution of the wealth of this country from the bottom up over the last 40 years, leaving us with this moment where people, the majority of people are struggling to get by while a handful have way too much. And the resentment that that breeds is not always, and, and I get like the, the liberal perhaps criticism of what I'm saying right now. Well, then why wouldn't you, you know, go after corporations rather than the government itself as the entity and so on at the beginning of our conversation? I think you very aptly broke down the two sides of our political system as one thinks government's the problem and the other thinks business is the problem. And why not? Well, I would say, you know, and I've written about this a lot in other essays, uh, we have a... um, a tendency to, you know, we obviously hold the opinions that we hold because we think they're the right opinions. And, um, and, but, but the thing is, even if your opinion is right, even if you have the right idea, even if you're on the right side of history, there is a version of you that very well could have ended up with the wrong idea. Okay. If you had been born in like, you know, I don't know, small town, Nebraska in 1991. And the only thing you ever saw on a fucking television in the local pizza parlor was Fox news. And every day when you were a kid, your dad had Rush Limbaugh on in the car while you were in on the highway to go buy, you know, discount groceries and then you, you know, you, you worked, uh, your, your, your first job was working in the fields and the people that you knew were bleeding and scarred when they came home from work. And then the culture, every time you saw it reference your life in small town, rural America was largely disparaging or portrayed you as backwards buffoons. Like you'd get a chip on your shoulder and concurrently have the, the wrong messages being piped into your head about what to do with it. And so I'm just saying, like, we don't necessarily deserve a pat on the back if we're on the right side of history with our ideas. We should have a little bit of humility and, and um, gratitude that we happen to have found our way to them one way or another. And the vast majority of, you know, people really just kind of absorb the, the beliefs and the ideologies of the people who raised them and then, more importantly, later their social groups. Right. Yeah. And I think the the liberal sort of fallacy, one of the biggest liberal fallacies that is that every person is a rational actor at all times. Yeah. And the idea that, you know, oh, those, the, I mean, because what you've just said, it also applies to people who believe in conspiracy theories. It's like they were given, they, they reached with the information that they were given, they reached a certain conclusion. And to you, that may seem insane, but to them, it's like, well, how could you, you know, look at the way the world is like is 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 in a country without clash consciousness like of course this this sort of thing will happen over and over again and and yes. and not yes. and and having some compassion and being like okay so this person is quote unquote crazy mm-hmm. this person has been given the wrong information and like l- let me try to speak to them as a human being and not be like you're a deplorable I mean, yep. one, of the, one of the worst moments oh, of the God. 2016 campaign. Yeah, we saw how that, but, how that played out. Not a good, not yeah. a good strategy. No. Well, I'll, I'll, I'd like to end by asking about Dolly Parton, because you wrote a really great book about Dolly. And 
her quote about lean in is you know, is that you know I've leaned over, which is which is very funny and it's a nice encapsulation of your point about that like feminists like Dolly are more likely to walk the walk than talk the talk. So are there other working class feminists whose writing, whose ideals, or whose ways of walking the walk you admire? Hmm. I could, if I could add just, I, I'm, I'm relishing this conversation because all, all discussions should end on Dolly. Um, but I, but I, I yes. quickly just want to add, I think, <laughs> an, an important addendum to that, our last line of discussion, which is that I would never advocate for, you know, like, I, I, I'm, I'm not like an apologist for people who are causing harm to other human beings. And, and I think no. that like the, the um, onus for engaging with people who have found their way to dangerous ideas is, is on the shoulders of, you know, the, the, the greater privilege you have in society, the greater responsibility you bear for in, for be, being the one to engage with that group toward hopefully, you know, social progress. If someone has dangerous ideas, then I, I don't, um, I, I, I don't blame someone who, who falls into a, you know, a, a category of, Targeted demographics, I guess, basically, whether for race or gender or, or other reasons, um, protect yourself, preserve yourself. There's no, um, yeah, I think, I guess I'm just saying, I, really, my critique is like of comfortable, white, liberal, urban people who are like, you know, shaking their fingers at all those dummies out there in the middle of the country. That's where I was at with that. But so Dolly Parton for me was um, growing up kind of like a model of what I think of as a, as a working class feminism. And what I mean by that is to go back to a point we discussed a little bit earlier in a different context, there, those, um, you know, terms and vocabularies that I now have as a, you know, highly formally educated liberal American were, were not available to me back then my the women around me were not using feminist language they they never sat in a classroom where they read theory and they never absorbed those vocabularies and wouldn't have known what a lot of those words even mean frankly but they organically embodied the tenets of feminism they lived it they did it i watched it they modeled it it was not a it wasn't a lesson it wasn't a message it was just life and that you know, I, I think that um, if I had to pick between somebody wearing a T-shirt that says feminist, who then is behind the scenes in their life, you know, maybe all, you know, benefiting from patriarchal structures in some sketchy ways and making decisions that harm the feminist cause that reverberate out from the home or workplace or whatever, versus someone who says, because the term uh, feminism has been weaponized and they are averse to it in their political space. And they say, no, I'm not a feminist, but they live feminism every day of their life. Which one of those do I think makes more of a difference in our society? I, I would have to give the edge to option B. And, and so for me, Dolly Parton, you know, is like, she is, she's also, she's like a little bit cagey about that term. That might be surprising to some people. She's very vocally progressive and liberal in all sorts of ways. But again, I don't, she would never use those terms about herself. And I think it's because 
you know, people could say, well, she's a business person. She doesn't want to piss off her conservative country fans. Well, you know, she's she's pissed them off before, and I think she's doing all right money-wise. Um, she wrote a song for the movie Trans America. She got some death threats for performing it at, I don't know, the CMAs or the Oscars or something. She said the words Black Lives Matter in uh, Billboard magazine a year or two ago. And so it's, you know, it's not like um, she won't hang it on the line for what she thinks is right to, you know, preserve her business interests. I think that she genuinely coming from where she does, um, you know, she finished high school the day after she was the first person from her family to do so. The next day she got on a bus from her holler to, to, uh, Nashville to try to be a country star. And I think that she just like there, she's still a working, a you know, working poor, girl at heart in terms of she's very of course very worldly and she's been insanely wealthy much longer than she's been poor but uh i i think that it's still instilled in her that some of those some of those terms they sound potentially divisive to her in in ways that are unhelpful for someone whose message is always about inclusiveness and so she's never going to like back down from living as a feminist even as she might feel a little bit suspicious about particular terms. And I, I think that while I am someone who proudly embraces the term feminist and and for, you know, I, I think that what it boils down to is sometimes we're getting into arguments over words that we're defining differently. So if you have a completely different experiential definition of a term, you might still actually agree on, on the, the points at the heart of the matter. It's more about a breakdown of language in our in our modern political era than anything. And and I think that one of the reasons that Dolly Parton is, as I write about the book, the the great unifier is that she's, um, her role she sees as, as always being toward bringing people together. And that sometimes means kind of tiptoeing around some words, but never tiptoeing around the tenets and the values that those terms stand for. Absolutely. I mean, are there are there other women, are there working class feminists who's who? I mean, nobody's like Dolly, right? Yeah, but. yeah. I'm, and I'm sorry, <laughs> I totally missed the meat of your question when I went off on that big rant. But um, other it's women, hard not to you know, truly. And I expand beyond Dolly in my my writing about her to say that the women of country music, and there are quite a few others from like the 80s and 90s when I was coming up, and that would include. When you get into the 90s, for sure, Shania Twain and a lot of these like pop country women who were writing their own songs, writing their own lyrics. We recently lost one of them who was a pioneer starting in the 60s of that sort of like feminist country music ethic, Loretta Lynn. All of these women's voices were on heavy rotation in my households growing up. And they were, as I write, like the formative feminist text of my life. So, oh my gosh, um, the Judds, um, Naomi Judd also recently passed. Yeah, they're just like that genre of music. I, I find it, it's so interesting to me how it's so easily panned and disparaged as silly and 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 often presumed sexist and patriarchal. And meanwhile, there's this almost like radicalized faction of women with within that genre who I, I have that same admiration for for so many of them. I wasn't, you know, raised with feminist books necessarily, but I was raised with their music and the message um, about everything from, you know, 
domestic abuse to contraception to the double standards um, in sexual terms with which men and women are treated. The, all of those things were spelled out for me by by women in, in country music toward the end of the 20th century. Well, thank you for clearing that up. Very important to make make that clear. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for this conversation. It was so lovely to talk to you. Thanks, Violet. It's, it's been great. You've been listening to the Harper's Podcast. The music is cut and shoot by Febrifuge. The New York Times called Harper's America's most interesting magazine. Receive elegant, insightful, and wry writing from the best journalists, essayists, critics, novelists, and poets every month in our print magazine and gain access to our digital archive, which stretches back to 1850. Visit harpers.org save to subscribe for only $16.97.